Hello, good evening. Well, we're going to be receiving the offering at this time, so if you'll just prepare your hearts to do that. Uh, I just want to say that if you're visiting us for the first time, we want you to receive this service as our gift to you. So please don't feel obligated to give. We just, our heart is that you just enjoy the evening. And for those of you that are visiting from another church, don't give your tithes here because that belongs to your home church. But for the rest of us that call New Hope our home church, give generously and give with a cheerful heart, okay? Well, I'd like to share an encouraging word from God regarding tithing. God calls us to be good stewards of the finances and the resources that he gives to us. Tithing happens to be the starting point of our stewardship of the finances that God entrusts to us. Of the 100% that he gives us, he just asks us to start by giving 10% back to him. That's tithing. Then God receives your tithe. He opens the windows of heavens and he pours down the blessings that you can't even contain. Well, that is God's promise to you. And he will not break it. He will not break it. In fact, he says, test me in it. Test it and you will see the windows of heaven open to you. Well, it always pays big dividends when we trust and obey God. And I tell you, there is no banking system that is more secure, more generous than God's bank. So give generously to him because it's a blessing to you. Okay? Thank you. Um, would you please bow your heads and let's pray over the offering. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. Thank you that you give us so generously, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you pour so much into our lives, not only the finances, but resources. And, Father, the help that you give us, Father, we just thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. And with grateful hearts tonight, we give you back a little of what you ask us to give, Lord. So please receive it, and I pray that you will use it to further your kingdom and reach others so just like us, they'll get to know you more. We love you, and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Pauline. Sure. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. Thank you, Pastor yeah. Sheldon. <laughs> I didn't know which way you are going to go, so it was like a, anyway. I thought you wanted to dance. No, that's okay. I don't, I don't know how to. I, I can, but it's like the eighth grade intermediate dance, not of today kind, but anyway. So we are here tonight. We're concluding our series on values, and if you've been here in the past uh, weeks or so, we've been talking about the values that God has given to us versus the values that we've kind of been brought up with, and sometimes we're, we're brought up with certain values, and then we come to know the Lord, and then we're wondering, are these values the same as the values that I was brought up with? Uh, and sometimes two people will come together, and they come together with two different set of values. And then you get married, and then you come to know Christ, or you're growing in your relationship with the Lord. And then you're trying to figure out what value system are we going to have? Are we going to have the value system that you were brought up with or the value system that I was brought up with? But because we live here in Hawaii, many of us have the same kind of value system that we were brought up with. Even though we may have lived in separate places or in different uh, areas in the state, we kind of have certain same values. 
Finish this sentence for me. Here in Hawaii, we are taught to respect our? Look how easy that was. Respect our elders. Okay. If your kids don't listen, you give them? <laughs> Look how easy that was. Some of you said candy. Different culture. But we all have, we all have some set of value uh, based upon where we grow up and then the culture that we live in. When it comes to the Lord, he gives us his value system. And the amazing thing about God's value system is that it's true, it's accurate, and it's unchanging. It stays the same. Therefore, if we want to have a good value system, the best place to go to is God's value system. Now, the amazing thing about being here in Hawaii, and I'm sure other places too, is certain values that we've grown up with have been passed down from generation to generation. And when you come to know the Lord and His value system, many of them do line up. One of them is, yet yeah, you respect your elders. So there are certain values that will line up with the Word of God. As time goes by, sometimes we forget about the values that God has given to us, even the values that we were brought up with. Sometimes we'll say these things as we were growing up, uh, and our, our parents are you know, teaching us certain things. We'll say this. We'll say things like, when my children grow up, I'm going to let them do anything. That's what we say. I'm not going to restrict my children. I'm not going to let them have a curfew. You know, these are nine-year-olds speaking. I'm not going to let them have a curfew. I'm just going to let them do whatever they want and let them have their freedom. But we think in that way because we don't, we don't realize the ramifications of not having a disciplined life or just letting our children do whatever they want. So as we continue to grow up, we learn more values. We learn why we have values. And then we learn how important values are. So tonight, as we conclude, we're going to talk about the value of family. Every single person has a family. Every single person. Or had a family. Maybe your parents passed away and you were the only one. However, maybe you have extended family. Some of you might think, no, I'm the only one left. Well, you came from a family. In the kingdom of God, he designs family in such a way that is for your benefit and my benefit, our benefit, regardless of what kind of family you grew up in. Now, you might think, well, I had a horrible upbringing, so why would God put me in a horrible family setting? Why would God do that? Well, the thing that God does the best is he gives us eternal life. So the life that we have here on this earth is such a blink of an eye compared to all of eternity. At the same time, God can always redeem your story. Because you know God, he can use your story to reach people who have yet to come to know him because they're in that story. Same story, but they don't have God yet. In other words, they don't have the kind of hope that you have. So we can look at our past and say, but why did God do this? Or we can say, God, this happened in my life. Can you redeem that to be used for your glory? Now, I know along with it comes hurt and some frustrations and things like that. At the same time, God is the healer, and he's the one that can project us into our future. And he said this, the promise that he has for us is that we have a future and a hope. It's not plans for disaster, but for good. So the good that he looks forward, that God looks forward to, he wants to deposit to us. But we have to be able to project that forward. We have to be able to say, God, the values that you have for me, that, those are the values that I want to have for my life as well as for my family. 
There's a scripture that we're going to look at in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 6 and 7. I'll, I'll kind of give you the, the back history, the backstory of Joshua chapter 6, which I believe we read some time ago on a Sunday morning. We talked about when the Israelites came across the first city that they were going to take over as they entered the promised land. They came to a place called Jericho. It was a formidable city, a walled city, 30 feet high, 30 feet thick. And they marched around the city. And that's the one where Joshua told the Israelites, do not shout, except on this day you're going to shout. And then the walls fell down flat. But when the walls fell down flat, there was one section that didn't. There was a family that was spared. It was Rahab the harlot. She was spared. And the reason why she was spared was because when the Israelites sent in two spies, she hid them so that they could go back and report what was happening in the city. And so Rahab said, if I, if I hide you, will you spare my family when you take over this city? Because we know that the armies of God is feared among all other armies. So Rahab made that decision. And so she was spared. Well, they took over Jericho, and then they went into the city, and they, they plundered everything. Well, the deal was that everything was, was going to belong to the Lord. So everything that they took, all the plunder, the bronze, the gold, all the metals, all the valuables, they took, and they put it in the treasury of the Lord. At the same time, they burnt the city. So city destroyed. Well, in chapter 7, I'll read it, we find that something took place that caused the entire Israelite army to kind of like fall apart. I'll actually start in verse 20 from chapter 6 so that we kind of have the back end of it. In verse 20, it says, when, when the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, at the sound of the trumpet, the men gave us a loud shout, and the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. So this is the ending of when they're taking the city. And then we'll go down to verse 26. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. So what they did was a major accomplishment because Jericho was, was one of those cities that no one could take over. And so Joshua and the Israelites, they took it over because the Lord was with them. Now it gets pretty interesting, almost dramatic and soap opera-ish. But in verse 1, chapter 7, it says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent some men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told him, go up and spy out the region. Well, Joshua told them, the men, go out and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. In other words, they're saying, our guys against theirs, we can take them out. Easy. We can do this. No problem. So about 3,000 went, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. 
At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So now the people are thinking, wait a minute, we just took over the, the most formidable city, and now we're taking out this little city that has no army, really, and why are we running from them? How in the world are we losing this battle? Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads, which is an act of mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. So it's almost like Joshua is in a pity party. He's saying, why, why are we even here? Why didn't we stay back there? And he continues in his kind of his pity party. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe us out and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? In verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? In other words, he's saying there is a time to pray, Joshua, but there is a time to fight. There's a time to get up. There's a time to move, and there's a time to go. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. In other words, God is answering Joshua's question. Joshua is saying, why is this happening? He says, oh, I'll tell you why. Because you guys didn't, come, didn't obey my commands. You stole the things that were devoted to me, and you put it in your own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So God is, he's helping Joshua figure out what is happening. Joshua is, he's, he, he cannot even fathom how they can go from this top of, the, top of the hill and then at the bottom of the valley. How can we go from this being the greatest warriors and then now being a defeated foe? How can that happen in such a short amount of time? So now God gives them instructions, go consecrate the people, tell them, consecrate yourselves, which means to set themselves apart to God in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In other words, sometimes things that happen in our life, we're trying to figure some things out and we're saying, God, why, why can't we move ahead? Why can't we push forward? Why can't we... Why can't we have these blessings that you promised us. What, what, is, what is hindering us? And it very well might be something that's latched onto our lives or in our very own, own homes. And God is saying, these things have to be removed. I cannot go with you with these things in there at the same time. So in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family, and the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. So let me draw something really quickly. This is like God's is a filtering system for family. So he started off, he said, bring the tribe, right? They had 12 tribes, and then bring the clan, because they had overseers, and then bring that family from that clan, from that tribe, and then you bring that individual. So God uses 
he uses a systematic way of helping out a family in how to uh, have these values and then have that value of family as well as how do you move forward when there are certain things holding you back. So he said, bring them, bring them forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the, de- the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes. And Judah was chosen. So they came by tribe. And then Judah was chosen, the tribe of Judah. The clans of Judah came forward. And the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families. And Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man. And Achan, son of, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory, give glory to the Lord God, the Lord, of, the, the Lord God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now, Joshua is giving him an opportunity. Now, this almost sounds like parenting, does it? It almost sounds like Something happened in the family, and you're saying, okay, kids, tell me who did this, and you got to narrow it down, and you try to look at the most guilty person. Now, in our family, we have three grandchildren, and we came home one day from a trip, and Heidi has this, you know, the Raggedy Ann and Andy doll? Raggedy Ann and Andy, yeah. Uh, We found the doll head of Raggedy Ann, (laughs) And, and so we're wondering, like, what happened? Now, we have three grand boys, so I don't know what they were doing. But then we found the rest of the body hidden in this little, we have a, a, a place where we put like paper plates and things, like a little, uh, like a shelf area. It was hidden in there. So we're thinking, okay, something happened. So we brought the grandchildren together. And, and, and so Heidi said, okay, which one of you guys did this? The guilty one looks down. The one that doesn't know is inquisitive. The oldest one points. So... I mean, it was obvious who did it, and so they narrowed it down to who it was, and so we asked them what happened, and of course, they were playing with it, and then it got ripped apart, and they got scared, and so they hid it. This is what happened with this man. He took something, he hid it, and now God is saying, let's all get together. Let let me figure out who did this because someone is going to have to pay a price for it. Someone is going to be punished for it because this is a detestable thing. In other words, God was trying to establish his family and the structure of family, and he was saying, this is a no-go. This does not work in the structure of the family that I'm trying to build, as well as what I'm, looking forward in the fu- what I'm looking forward to in the future. And you'll see why later on. So Joshua says, give glory to God. Tell me what you did, and don't hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from, Beth- from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground outside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had, 
to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you this day. You know what Joshua is saying? He's saying because of what you did, over 30 of our men got killed in battle. And now, how do we explain that to their families? See, Achan didn't see the ramifications that were going to take place when he did what he knew he shouldn't have done. And sometimes we don't think that it affects our family, the things that we do. We just think, oh, it just affects me. I'm just going to do this. It's not going to affect my family. It does. It, it affects everyone that surrounds us, especially the people that are close to us and the people that love us. Then all of Israel stoned them to death, and after they had stoned the rest, they buried them. So his entire family, they stoned to death. Over Achan, they heaped up a pile of rocks, a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. Horrible story, horrible ending. Starts off looking pretty good that the, that the people of God are able to now come into the promised land and receive the blessings of God, but then everything starts to turn. You see, we've all done things. We've all done something that has caused, as it were, sin to be in our hearts, in our tent, or sin to be in the camp of our family. We've all done something. Or, or maybe we have people in our family that has, that has done things, and they're not proud of it, and maybe they're trying to change. So... How, how can we still value family when it seems like our families are sometimes falling apart or being attacked or torn apart or go through difficulties throughout different seasons? Or what do we do when we have different personalities in the family and you're all living together under one roof? How, how do you work that out? How do, you, how do you still value family when there's a lot of tension? Well, we're going to look at three basic mindsets to have to develop the value of family or to increase it if you already have that value to make it stronger. And here's the first thing that we want to learn. If you're taking notes or if you have the church app, you can just throw this in there. The first thing is to think of God as a father. Think of God as a father. And here's why. We want to think of God as a father because sometimes we think of him only as judge or creator. We, we very rarely think of him as a father. We understand he is the father, that he is the creator of all and he is the father. But think of him as a father. As a father, he is a father, that he takes care of us, he gives us value, he provides for us, he shows us the way to a better future. And sometimes we think God is only out to get us, like God is, if, if I make a mistake, God is out to get me. And when something happens to you, you're thinking, see, that's why that's happening, because I did this. And, and in fact, someone told me, they said, what do you think about karma? I said, the song? He said, no, the, the, just, you know, when you do something bad, it comes back around to you. I said, explain it in a better context. They said that, that bad things happen to bad people. I said, bad things happen to good people too. So the idea of when you do something bad, something bad is going to happen to you doesn't always work out because there are a lot of things that people do that are bad and nothing bad happens to them yet in, in the sense of we're all going to face God one day. But when it comes to seeing God as Father, He's not out to get us in the sense of He just wants to judge us. He's out to get us in the sense of I want to embrace you. That's why I sent you my son because I don't want to judge you so that my anger is, is quenched. I'm going to take it out on my son because I love you. 
That's the whole reason why God wanted us in his family, because he wanted to spend eternity with us. But we forget sometimes that although God is judge, he is also a father. So think of God as a father. Just like our dads being the judge, they're also the father. I don't know how it is in your family, but it, it almost seems like for some families, it, it, they feared dad's belt more than they feared anything else. Or if dad spoke, it, things were different. Mom could say things over and over, but then dad says, hey, and then everybody moves. There's just something about it. Now, I grew up under a single, a single household, single parent, so my mom was both judge and, you know, executioner. So she played both parts, but same thing. When she was ready to, you know, be the dad, we knew when, she, when you know, she was going to just go off. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16, it says, Doubtless are you father. Through Abraham, although Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from everlasting is your name. Now, the Israelites addressed God as Father, but they addressed Him as Father as in a corporate Father because He was Father of everyone. They didn't address Him as Father as an intimate Father. Not only until Jesus came did Jesus address Him as Abba Father, which means Daddy, like there's an intimacy what Jesus was doing is he was saying, yes, God is father of all. That's why Jesus said, pray like this, in this way, our father who art in heaven. He's saying, yes, he's a father corporately, but he's also a father. He's a father to us. He's that intimate with us. And the Israelites, as they addressed him as father, not even in the intimate way, learned from Jesus how to address him as father in an intimate way. And as time went on, after Christ, that's how they started to address God the Father more in a more intimate way. There's times where, because I had my son at an early age, people didn't know I was his father. They thought I was his brother because I had my son when I was 15. So as I'm growing up with him, I'll take him to school and, and they say, oh, cute, you're dropping off your brother. I'm like, yes, yeah, my son. Or we would go on, you know, field trips and things like that. Oh, cute, you're chaperoning your brother. That's my son. Uh, and then, you know, we would, we, I would take him to football practice. Oh, right on. Hey, bring your brother. No, that's my son. So, and I was okay with that. I, I was fine with that because I was at a young age. But as time went on, we had to learn for my son and I that because we were so close in age, there was that parent-son relationship that you had to develop over time. And what happens is sometimes when we're with God, we forget that he is a father. And that parent to son or daughter relationship is developed over time because we probably had a warped view of God while we were growing up. We thought he was out to get us. I don't know about you, but I remember seeing these tracks, you know, those, the, the paper. I, they might still have that. And I would read those growing up, and the end was always hell. Like I was burning in fire, but the, well, the end end was somehow God is on the throne. He didn't have a face, and it was in black and white, and his face is shining kind of thing. So I always thought that, that God didn't like me, and I was going to go to hell. That was my thought. So I viewed God in that kind of way, but when I learned about him being a father, then things started to change. And I started to think of him as, a, as more a father, that he is my father. He is our father in the context of this intimacy, in this relationship. And just like our children, we are, yes, their father or their mother, but they address us in a way that's intimate. Dad or mom, they call us that. This term, Abba, Father, is what Jesus said to God 
when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was going to the cross. It's like the cry of the son to daddy. It's like, dad, is there another way that we can do this? But I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. That was a cry of the heart of Christ. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And that was the heart of Jesus. It was such an intimate moment with him and the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Jesus is teaching us is that's how we should be with God. That, that intimate moment with God, that intimacy with him, that closeness with him. And wherever you are in life, it doesn't matter how bad you've been or how good you think you are, he's still dad to us. He wants to be close to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, they continue to use this word. The spirit you receive does not make you as slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, by Jesus, through Christ, we call him Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And it's not just a term where, you know, little children call them daddy. It's also where adults would call their fathers Abba. So it wasn't just a childish word to speak, but it was what children would call their fathers, daddy. It was an intimacy. So think of God as a father. And I know for some, it may, it may almost seem like, does that mean we're narrowing God down to less than? No, we're not. No matter what we say about God, it doesn't change who he is, but he himself came to us and gave us permission to call him dad. That's what Jesus was doing. So think of him as a father. The second thing is to think of ourselves or myself, think of myself as a child of God. Just think of yourself as a child of God for a moment. Like the privileges that you have, not in a, in a, in a, in a demanding way or a way that's entitled, but in a way that's, wow, we, we have such a joy. We have, we have such a, a hope to look forward to because we're children of God. We have, a, we have a, a future in store for us because we're children of God. Now, with the Israelites, they had, they had a kinship. They had a, a family bloodline. That that's, why, that's how they narrowed it down to this individual when it came to Achan. They had to go through kinship. They had to go through the family bloodline because that's how they identified them. It was through the tribe, clan, family, and then individual. Today, we just have our, if you're going to a certain school or uh, maybe you need a certain type of uh, ancestry, you're going to have to trace that through your bloodline. You cannot just go to, a, uh, I'm, I'm just using Kamehameha schools as an, as an example. You cannot go to Kamehameha schools and just say, oh, I like, I like join. And they say, oh, uh, do you have Hawaiian? No, no need. I just like come school. You, there is a certain criteria that is needed. So, or you can go and say, oh, yeah, I get Hawaiian. I get Hawaiian. And they'll say, okay, we're going to trace it back. Oh, no need trace. Take my word for it. They're not going to take your word for it. Why? Because they need to trace it. There needs to be some type of proof. So the same is true when it came to these guys. They needed to show proof where they were from. And the reason for that is because God structured a family in such a way that you're to build each other up. And you're connected through blood. That's how you're connected. Which you can, you, you can never, you can choose what job you want, but you can't choose your family. And for some people, they're saying, I didn't want this family. At the same time, God saw that there was a reason for your family. 
There's a reason that you're in that family. And there's a reason why he called you to be who you are in that family. So if you think of yourself as a child of God, think of yourself as this too, that you're connected through bloodline. Now, what bloodline are we connected to God with? It's the blood of Jesus. That's, he shed his blood so that we could be in the bloodline of the family of God. So if you receive Jesus, you're included in the family of God. You're now sons and daughters of the Most High. Yeah, but I have a past. I have some things that I did wrong. Right. However, Jesus paid the price for those sins. That's what his blood does. His blood covers us and it cleanses us and his blood brings us into his family. When Joshua was dealing with the Israelites and trying to figure out how do we, how do we get better at doing this? Something is happening. Why is it that things are not going well? And God said, here are the things that took place. You're going to have to narrow it down. And so early the next morning in verse 16, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. It narrowed it all the way down to someone in the family. Now when this guy and his family was, was executed, all of Israel felt it. All of Israel felt it. They weren't there applauding. This was a horrible day. This wasn't something they were looking forward to. They, they, they did not want to see this happen. But Joshua used that also as an illustration of when this, when this takes place, it affects everyone else. 30 plus warriors died because of one man's sin. It's amazing how we affect the people around us. You know, when my son Jay, which was my oldest, and, and I were, and we were kind of close in age, and it was like, are you brother, are you dad kind of thing, uh, there was one time when he got into a fight, and we were, we were at a party, and I'm sitting down, and I'm watching them playing on, playing on the playground, and I see my son slide down the slide, and another kid slide down, and this other kid was kind of taller, he's bigger than my son, and I don't know what happened, but then he was looking at my son, and he was yelling at him for something. And then my son was looking at him, and he was yelling at him for something. I didn't know what it was. And then my son punched him in the face. And then I ran out there, and I said, what are you doing? What are you guys doing? And the guy said, oh, uh, when I slid down the slide, uh, he bumped into me. And my son Jay said, no, you pushed my friend. I told you, stop making trouble to my friend. Now, my son at that time, I think he was four years old, and this other kid was maybe, maybe nine or ten. I, I don't know. He was just taller. So... So I said, well, okay, knock it off, you guys. And I said, Jay, you, you don't punch people in the face. You don't do this. And then here comes this man walking, and that was his son who got hit in the face. And he said, what happened? And I looked at this guy. Now he's bigger than me. So I'm thinking, oh, man, I hope this doesn't get, you know, crazy. So he, he said, well, what happened? So the son is trying to explain. And, and I said, oh, they just got into this thing and, you know, on the playground kind of thing. And so he says, okay. So he looks at my son. He goes, where's your dad? And my son looks at me and goes, he's right. I say, yeah, where's your dad? Let's go find your dad. I'll go find his dad. So I was okay with being his brother at that time. I was good with that. And, and we, were, we were fine. And, and my son is trying to tell me, but dad, I'm like, no. I'm like, this guy's bigger than me. So just, shh, I'll tell you, I'll talk to you later. So we left that. We were fine. And yeah, I laugh about it now, but I, I don't know what I was teaching my son. There are moments there are moments that we do things 
that we're ashamed of. There are moments that we, we don't want to identify with God because there is just certain moments that we kind of push God away. We just don't identify with him at, at, in those moments. And what, what God does very well is he allows us to choose. He allows us to choose. But at the same time, if we think of God as father and we think of us as child, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. In fact, the Bible even tells us, do not be ashamed of God. See, the reason why we talk about God and his family so much to understand the value of family is because if we don't value us being in the family of God, we won't value being in a family from God. And when we value the family of God and we understand how God designed everything, then we can value the family that he's given to us. Joshua, excuse me, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. It's, it sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? It's like if you don't, this is how we know, like we're separating the, who's the children of God and who's not, who's of the devil and who's of God. Anyone who does not do, who, do what is right is not God's child. In other words, all of us, like we've all done things that are wrong. So what the Bible is saying is, if you think you're going to belong to the family of God by doing good deeds and trying to earn righteousness, it's not going to happen. That's not how we're made right in God's eyes. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that we are holy and without fault in God's eyes. That long ago, even before God made the world, he loved us and chose us to be without fault in his eyes. So we want to do what is right because Jesus became our righteousness. It's not the other way around where we, we do things that are right and now we gain God's righteousness. No, we do what is right because Jesus became our righteousness. So it's not based on our works or our behavior. We want to do better because we're a child of God. We don't do well to become a child of God. He made us his children through the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. And the last thing, think of us, we think of ourselves as, yes, being a child of God, but then think of the family as the smallest church. If you really want to value family, think of the family as the smallest church. That you're in your family and you pastor your family. You pastor your family. That, that God gave you that, that ministry, as it were. He has anointed you as parents, brothers or sisters. You're in that family, the smallest church. I was watching this debate between this one, one gentleman who was, he's, he's, he's doing his very best to, to keep the structure of the family strong. And, and the opposing side was telling him, but, but why are you so focused on the family and, and, and trying to get the family strong? We have all these activists going out there and they should be doing all this activism and, and they should be out there and, and doing all these things and, and trying to change the world that way. Why are you talking about the family? And, and the man said, if you don't change the family to where it's heading nowadays, everything falls apart. But if you exert all of your energy, 
into the family structure, you won't need to do any activism in the sense of trying to bring about a great change. Now, we live in a country that we have freedom of speech, but what he was saying was in the context of, you want to change the world? Start with the family. Because that's where everything stems from. It's the family structure. God designed it that way because it's the smallest church. Yeah, we can, we can look outside and, and even point fingers at different organizations, but really God is saying, but these people don't spend as much time as you do with your family. These people are not heavily invested like you are with your family. These people are not given the responsibility to pray for your family. These people aren't responsible to raise up their children in the ways that they should go. You are. It's the value of family. And God created, that, created it that way. And sometimes we get lost in the structure of family because of the, all the complications that come with it. But it's pretty simple. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, I'm going to read some scripture. And, and this, is, this is such a simplistic way to look at the family structure. And it's difficult, but it's also a simple way. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In other words, God is saying it's a partnership. It's not one over the other. It's actually saying submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We forget that it's out of reverence for Christ. So husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church and wives being submissive to their own husbands as unto the Lord. Those two are together out of reverence for Christ, not necessarily to each other. And that's it. It's out of reverence for Christ. So there's a structure that God is bringing. And then he says in Ephesians chapter 6, because children, you're involved in this too. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. This is the one with the promise. So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Almost sounds like so you don't die. But what it's saying is you have a blessed life. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In other words, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't keep pushing them and pushing them and pushing them to anger. It's bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Then Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 through 27 It says, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. And this brings it back to Achan, what Achan was dealing with. He was dealing with the law. It was locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed so that the law, the law that we're under, It was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ 
have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, he's saying you were under the law, that law that Achan was under, that he was punishable by death for stealing. Not just him, but his entire family. Now, I'm not making fun of the situation, but imagine his wife. That she's saying, what did you do? Now we're all going to die. This is this, not just you, but you affected us. You affected the children. You affected everyone. What Jesus is saying is, that was the law. Someone deserved death because it was just that detrimental and it was that disrespectful and dishonoring to God. What Jesus did is he became our Achan. That's what he became for us. We were the ones that stole. We were the ones that did wrong against God. We were the ones that sinned. And then we, all, we were all found to be guilty as an individual. And we stood before God, as it were, outside of our tent. And we were supposed to die in our sin. And it's like just before we were going to be stoned to death, Jesus stops and says, hang on, hang on. You know, what, what they did, I'm going to take their place. I, I'll, I'll take the hit for them. I'll take the hit for the, for the father. I'll take the hit for the mother. I'll take the hit for the children. I'll, I'll take, take it on me. And he was speaking to God as his father. And God took out the punishment that we deserved on his son on the cross. God had to watch his son take the beating, get flogged, go through all that pain, crown of thorns, nails through his hands, nail through his feet, and die on a cross. And at the same time, take on every single sin of the entire world's population that have ever existed. And God took out his wrath on his son. That's the value that God sees in what we call family. Now you might think, that's horrible. What kind of family is that, that God would do that to his very own son? He did that for you. He did that so we could have our family, so that we could be family. Because most of the time, what rips a family apart is not personality. It's sin. It's unforgiveness. And God said, I paid the price for that. Forgive. Release. Be family again. Because it's the smallest church that you will ever see that can be the most successful in our world that changes our world. It may be one family at a time, but that's all that's needed, and that's what God created. And I think when we understand the value of family, then we'll understand God's value system in general because every relationship will come out of our relationship with God. Once we value this relationship, every other relationship begins to fall into place. So tonight we're going we're gonna to pray. I'm going to ask you to close your Bibles and put away your notes and invite Grace into the keyboard. And it's found in, in Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to pray this for all of us. It's the armor of God. That we're going to pray the armor of God over ourselves and our families tonight. 
And if you think of what Jesus did in taking our place, he, Jesus came to identify with us. He came to identify the, the, the tribe, the clan, the family, the individual, us who are gathered here tonight. And as he took on that hit, as he said, just take, bring the punishment on me, he, he, he took our punishment because you're family to him. That's what Jesus sees us as. That's the value of family. Jesus sees you as family. So he, he was willing to pay the price. But I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 8, which is the full armor of God. I'm going to pray this over you. I'm going to pray this over us as a church. We're going to pray this over us as a family. And, and you can, in your heart, even, even say these words. But it reads this in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I'm, I'm saying this to you also. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Lord, that's our prayer tonight. I pray that over all of us. I pray that over our families. I pray that we would be protected from you by the enemy. But you have given us one tool that is used in an offensive way. All the armor that we pray is for the defense. It's to shield us, to protect us. But you've given us the sword of the Spirit, your word. That's our weapon. For the weapons formed against us shall not prosper, but you've given us a weapon so that we can face the enemy. So tonight, Lord, we hold true to your word. We want to stand strong on your word. Help us to stay in your word so that we'll be ready just in case the devil shows up. We have your word because he's a defeated foe. We can give him the truth and that's what makes us free. So, Lord, tonight, that's our prayer. Thank you for showing us the value of family. Help us today to apply what we've learned. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we all sit together. Amen. Can we say amen to God? Thank you, Lord, for all that he is.